Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 18th of August. Good morning, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. RTA says it entered into negotiations with Ryan Tuberzy for him to return to work in good faith, but trust has broken down. Negotiations have concluded and there are no plans for Tuberzy to return to RTA. It really is an odd story because a report from Grant Thornton this week highlighted how RTA knowingly and intentionally misled everyone about Ryan Tuberty's pay. Using a bit of creating uh, creative accounting, RTE juggled the numbers to make it look like Tuberty was earning less than half a million euro, when in fact he was earning more than half a million euro each year over three years of understated payments. So RTE made a fool out of you, me, the Oroctus, and its staff, and the staffed staff were fooled into taking pay cuts. RTE since then has been caught out. It's sorry, it shouldn't have happened, and it won't happen again, they say. Now, RTE accepts Ryan Tuberty earned more than half a million over those three years when it was saying he was paid less than that. Tuberty, for his part, says no, he was paid less than half a million. RTE says that's not acceptable. So unacceptable that Tuberty has to go. Paul Allen is a PR professional who worked for RTE for 15 years from TV Sound to continuity announcements uh, to the newsroom as a, a journalist for RTEs on the line. And a, a very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I, I think it uh, was a, a dramatic uh, uh, 24 hours, a, a dramatic uh, piece of breaking news last night uh, in line with the fact uh, that RTE had planned to, to bring Ryan Tuberty back anyway in the next couple of weeks before this breakdown in the negotiations occurred. What do you make of it all? Well, Mike, good morning and good morning to the listener. Um, Let's remember, this is taxpayers' money. Um, And when when we finish talking about this, we all need to move on to more important issues that are facing our country, cost of living, fuel poverty, etc., homes, houses for people. Um, This has become somewhat of a circus. And we're up at the case of Dallas and who shot J.R.? I was hoping to start this morning by recapping back uh, before the summer what was going on. One man didn't know what salary he was on. Another guy was getting paid for a company he didn't know. Uh, And it just it was all very shoddy. And this has come to a quick end. But I think essentially to the listener, if you listen to the director general, Kevin Backhurst, uh, listen very carefully to what he was saying. It was almost as if a friend of mine said to me this morning, almost as if he was dazzled by a false god. Um, and the God was talking to him, yes, take Tuberty back, take Tuberty back, all will be well. And then suddenly he crashed, uh, it all crashed on the marble floor, it all fell apart. Essentially what happened was Kevin Backhurst was doing his very best, and if I was advising him, I would say, no, you will contaminate the brand. It, you will contaminate the brand, it, you, you know, and 
he was doing his very best to rehabilitate Ryan Tuberty. The RTE uh, was doing his best. If you also listen to the comments last night, uh, people were working with Ryan. They were saying they were not happy for him coming back. The director general, he turned on his heel last night and said he wasn't happy with people working for Ryan that were leaking bits and bobs at various times. And if I may say, the Irish Times did their best. They did a piece earlier on about the sad passing of Sinead O'Connor. Uh, Ryan was talking about it, but Ryan spent more time talking about Ryan rather than Sinead O'Connor. So the whole area of rehabilitation was happening. But like Ryan and his manager and their performance in the Dáil, um, in the Dáil Committee, we would have worked with people that you slow the clock down and you speak slowly and you listen to what the question is. You formulate your thought. You don't come out like a rocket and say, when the feather leaves the, the cushion, or my, you know, I am doing this for the people of Ireland or the children of Ireland, all that old nonsense. And I actually would be, I would have recommended that he didn't do the Oireachtas Committee. So the whole thing uh, has taken RTE into a, a dark world. Um, thankfully, it's now come to an end. We can all get back to work. Um, and because it, this is not going to yeah. end. And well, I was just going like to, I was, I'm glad you said that because I was just going to say, yeah, I don't yeah. think it has come to an end no, uh, because Ryan Tuberty is only one actor in uh, this uh, ongoing saga. And there are many more questions uh, to answer. I mean, there is no doubt that RTE set out to make a fool of all of us. Uh, Ryan Tuberty is falling on that sword. I mean, I don't know if he instigated this or what role he had in it. All we know is that he, he didn't say those published earnings are incorrect. Uh, he seems to be cleared of wrongdoing by Grant Thornton. Uh, but he's the fellow who's gone under the bus, it would seem. Sure, but let's remember, this is August. The month is mid-August. We're near the end. He still hasn't given back the 150000 He could have done something. Uh, And if I was advising Ryan, I would say, take off to America, get away, stop reacting so quickly. As I was saying, he came out too quick with his response. And again, listen to Kevin Backhurst, the director general. They put out a statement which RTE didn't like. RTE went back and clarified it with his advisors. And he had another statement based on the original statement, which antagonized the situation, along with the leaks to media. So every source has an agenda, as we say in our business, and I don't want to lose the listener, but can you just imagine a small corner shop, you suspend somebody or they're off for the summer and you're wondering what's going on. People then refuse to come into the shop uh, and then you take the guy back and then there's a reaction and the staff give out and then you start having a go at the manager and you just say, look, I can't put up with this. You're a great guy. You're a great salesperson, but I cannot have you near the place. Look at the place. The iceberg, the iceberg that's coming at RTE is bankruptcy. Like, they have a budget of $340 million. Could you imagine what LMFM could do with that money? $340 million budget each year. The license fee, $3.7 million has not been paid. And guess what? This month, other people won't be paying because there's an issue out there with the cost of living and fuel poverty. You're paying a TV license for what? This circus, mm. this is unreal. And okay, I do, uh, just counter, to say, I just say this, this is my opinion. Yeah, they're all my opinion. Fair enough. Okay, uh, Kevin Backhurst was on television last night, and he said that Ryan Turbidy had been planning uh, to return the one hundred and fifty thousand euro. And I, I'm not sure that LMFM and RTE are comparable in that uh, RTE has many radio stations. It has two television stations uh, and uh, indeed uh, orchestras uh, and all uh, of uh, the other 
particular strings uh, that are attached to its bow, how it spends the money that it does receive, whether it's public money or through its advertising revenue, is another day's work. Uh, but there is no doubt uh, that uh, people have lost trust in RTE. Do you think that uh, Ryan Tuberty's departure will do anything in, in terms of people regaining trust? Uh, yes, yes, it will. Um, we need to draw a line in the sand. Uh, the staff need to go back to work in RTE and do what they do fabulously. Uh, and if I may say, many of the, the powers that be in RTE, they are program makers. They are superb, award-winning program makers. They're very talented. They are not business people. They do not know how to run a business. That's why they run up bills to the extent they have. Uh, and someone with a brain in their head needs to come in and sort this out. Essentially, all these reports that are coming in, it's clear. And in our business, we look at matters forensically. That's why I keep saying, listen to what Kevin Backer says. Look at his reaction, his body language. What annoys him? What antagonizes him? He's not from these parts, which is wonderful. He's a fresh pair of eyes. He's drawing a line in the sand. The book stops with him. And I wish him the very best of luck. The most interesting thing I think he, he said in that interview on primetime last night uh, was uh, that he was hoping that Ryan Tuberty would have returned to work on a salary of €170,000. Would you be concerned this morning if you were Joe Duffy or Claire Byrne or um, Maria O'Callaghan or one of uh, these other high earners? Yes, I would be quaking in my cornflakes. Uh, I'd be kicking away the sugar pups wondering, gosh, the big house and my expenditure, are they going to cut my budget? Yes, he is. We need to have a reality check. And back in the days when I was in working in RTE, oh, yes, they might go elsewhere. Where? Where are you going oh, to go? Well, I was just going to say BBC must be rubbing its hands together. This is the moment it's been waiting for, allegedly. Absolutely. But, but for Ryan Tuberty's brand... He should have taken off for the summer himself and his agent should have got an agent in the UK or America and just dust yourself down mm. and move on. He's a fine, fine broadcaster. He's a very talented person to get caught in the swamp with this sort of stuff. He said, she said mm. is, is shocking. He's a fine broadcaster and I hope his health as well, just in relation to the trauma that he's going through in relation to this. But it was too quick fire coming out, antagonizing people. You don't antagonize your boss mm. that's taking you back. And people whispering in the boss's ear, please don't take him back, please don't take him back. But do you expect an exodus of uh, broadcasting talent uh, from RTE? I mean, will these people work for €170,000? Less 150000 that he has to pay back. So No, but the, I mean, the, the, the staff uh, who continue to work for RTE, Joe Duffy, Claire Byrne, uh, Miriam O'Callaghan, these high earners, uh, I mean, they must be asking themselves now, am I, when my contract runs out, am I going to be told I'm on 170000 if I want to renew my contract? Uh, and if that is uh, the case, uh, what are their options? Uh, and will they look at those options? Will they go? Well, it goes back to my question, go where? Go home, sit at home? Or do the program. The new contract is there. Uh, it's clear from uh, Mr. Backhurst's engagement with Ryan Tuberty. He does not recognize a third party, Mr. 15%. Um, he doesn't uh, want him anywhere near him. He will deal directly, and it's up to the person to pay their 15% as opposed to 15% on the agreed fee. So in the context of what's going on, um, I think it's going to get better. But RTE have a great tier of other broadcasters, a fine guy on uh, Derek Mooney, at last they've got him a job. He is a fine, fine broadcaster in RTE. He's doing nature programs. But RTE are doing a summer program on Sunday that basically is the same as Nationwide that goes on Monday to Friday. 
So they just need to get new blood, um, take a break from this uh, shocking trauma that they've all had to deal with uh, and literally start again. Uh, the broadcaster, we need public service broadcasting and we need to pay our bills and we need to be responsible. But it's all about trust. If there was no trust in the flagship broadcaster in the context of Ryan Tuberty, how could he be the flagship broadcaster? Okay. And, and that sort of thing. And the sort of work we would do in terms of working with forensic auditors, forensic auditors always say a fish rots from the head. So the head needs to sort things out. That Mr. Backhurst is coming in, mm. new broom sweeps clean. This won't happen again. He will clean up the operation. But he can't have little people um, who are working very hard, doing various bits and pieces, tripping him up. Right. Is uh, the reform of RTA a job for Kevin Backhurst or is there a role for the minister in reconstructing RTA? Uh, because I would think that uh, there's a problem in the state broadcaster that it's not representative of the population that it serves. I mean, uh, are, Agree. are there travellers? Uh, are, um, are there people uh, who are born... Uh, in other countries, uh, working in RTE, making decisions, uh, putting programs together. Are, are there people uh, from working class estates, uh, people uh, who are recovering from drug addiction uh, and all of the things that we live in, 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 with in our daily lives? Uh, are young people represented? I mean, it's one of the things I think we started talking about, how young people don't watch television. They wouldn't know anything about RTE. They might remember Ryan Turberty from when they were a child watching the toy show, but there is where it begins and ends. They watch Netflix and so on. Uh, should they uh, not uh, be uh, attracted to what RT has to offer and how do you go about that? And is that where the government should come in and look at how RTE is constructed? Well, I, I think with respect, I think the government should let RTE and the programme makers make great programmes. Um, politicians come and go and senior civil servants uh, actually control budgets. But they will be looking to the government as a matter of months. Uh, I know they have denied this, but probably in the early part of next year, they'll be looking for uh, a bailout of probably 35 million. Don't be surprised if it's put in the in, in the budget coming up in October. But again, it, that, that sort of stuff um, uh, will, will combine you know, politicians. So do you really want to contaminate yourself by being part of all of this? Oh, you've bailed out RTE. Like right now, who would want to be known to be bailing out RTE? The license fee is, is, is central. 3.7 million uh, they've lost. They have a budget of 340 million. The debts are mounting. Uh, if this was a business, it would be bankrupt very shortly and they would be bringing people in to try and sort it out. They must sell off the assets they have. They must get out of, as I said on your previous pro on previous program, they must get out of RTE, sell the entire estate, move up uh, to Fingal or, or County Louth. Uh, Meads um, and just set up a new campus, sell off the radio stations like 2FM, mm. uh, Classic FM, uh, and just tighten it up. They don't need two channels. Uh, mind you, there was a guy who worked in RTE, Bill Malone. He went off to work for Virgin. I think he set three or four stations up uh, over a summer. Um, and we need to stop paying top dollar for programs that we can see on other channels. Okay. That's the problem. Um, We're competing with ourselves. Do you trust RTA today? I mean, uh, in terms of uh, what we've been told about parting ways with Ryan Turberty as part of that statement, we're told that the door remains open to him. Uh, I think a lot of trust has been lost in RTA. Would you forgive people for being cynical? in thinking that uh, Kevin Backhurst uh, did a deal with Ryan Tuberty, you can't go back on air. The fallout would be just too great. I mean, we'd have protests uh, in Montrose. Um, uh, people would be 
uh, going to town on you, etc. Uh, go away for six months and, and come back and everybody l- will have forgotten about it at that stage. Uh, the answer is I, I trust Kevin Backhurst um, and I trust him even more. The fact that he's not from here, so he can't allow himself to get involved in, um, let's say, lobbying. <laughs> uh, but in, in, in where we're going, uh, RT must build trust. Uh, so they have a hard job ahead of them. But the ship, the ship is sinking, so they'd want to start bailing the place out fairly quickly with water and get mm. focused and get reorganized. Um, he needs, Backers needs more people, more people on his team. He needs a good t- team to be with him. Um, and I would see, we'd see more resignations and more people fired um, in the coming weeks in order to clean up the mess. Okay. It's like it's like a ship mm. that's going down. We need to have a lighter crew. Well, on. I think anybody who was privy to how RTE set out to uh, fool all of us uh, would have to go and would have to be seen to be gone and that uh, the boards have been swept. Uh, but when it comes to Ryan Tuberty's future, does he have a future in the short term in this country in broadcasting will virgin or today fm or news talk or one of these stations want him or will he be seen as damaged goods well one of one of the greatest broadcasters we have is pat kenny believe it or not he's 75 uh he won't be in news talk i don't think for the next five or six years but knowing pat he probably will he's a superb broadcaster but i would be uh, choreographing uh, him departing and Ryan coming in probably in two years time but in the meantime Ryan enjoy your life you're a fine broadcaster you're a young man you have a great family go to America write another book experience life uh, and, and see in two years uh, and re- kickstart your career that's if RTE is still there uh, but I'd get into news talk um, or one of the stations but let's remember the salary he was on 170 it's still very high but it'd be nice if you returned our money, your money, my money. 150,000, mm. please. Okay. Uh, there was always this talk uh, about RTE staff going to the BBC and they have to be paid millions. And back in Kenny's case, nearly a million, 900,000 euro a, a year. Uh, I always thought it, it was a nonsense uh, because uh, there's been some great Irish broadcasters over the year and good and brilliant as Pat Kenny and Ryan Turberty are. I don't think they rank alongside the likes of Eamon Andrews, Gay Byrne, Terry Wogan or, or Graeme Norton. Uh, but uh, they certainly don't rank uh, alongside uh, the likes of Michael Parkinson, uh, who uh, passed away yesterday. Uh, Very, very sad news. I think we were all disturbed uh, to hear that Michael Parkinson had passed away because he he was a friend, he was part of our lives. Uh, We knew him uh, intimately. At least that's how it felt, and that was his skill, I I think. Uh, But you actually knew him. Uh, He was a family friend. He certainly was, and um, just to mention another name, um, from I, I'm a Northsider, so uh, Terry Wogan, when he moved from Limerick, he moved up to Ballyman Avenue, so I knew Terry, and then Terry got me involved in the Terry Wogan Golf Classic, uh, which was a, a fundraiser that was raising money for various charities, but one of the guys who came over was Michael Parkinson, so we got to know each other over 25, 30 years, um, and his son Mike uh, had him in Dublin doing various, various shows. Uh, but he was hilarious. Um, I have a fixation uh, as a, a fan of Peter Sellers. Uh, so in the middle of it all, he would tell me about stories about Peter Sellers ringing him up, pretending to be a, a China Chinese doctor or a dentist saying, ah, 2.30, 2.30, this is Dr. 2.30. And he would know exactly who he was, but then he invited him on the show on various occasions. And then he didn't know what he was going to turn up as, uh, dressed as, but he turned up as a German uh, stormtrooper one stage. 
uh, and just was entertaining. But uh, Mike, uh, he was battling over the years. I think he had prostate cancer. He recovered from prostate cancer. His wonderful wife, Mary, was a superb broadcaster. But in fact, she was from Ballina and she was great friends with Enda Kenny. So uh, he was just a remarkable man. He put everybody at ease. But um, I wrote a blog there recently about listening. He had a gift of listening. And if you have the chance to look at, during the day, some of the interviews he did on YouTube, mm. he had the power just to ask a question and listen. And it goes back to what I was saying about Ryan. Stop shouting your mouth off. Just take it easy. Let the other person talk. Because the other person is on for a reason. And they've got great stories. Away you go. Just talk away. But poor Mike and his family, rest in mm, peace. And Mary, absolutely. they're devastated by it. But I met him in Belfast. And it was kind of funny. He says to me, here, I got you a bottle of wine. I said, I don't want a bottle of wine. I have to drive back to Dublin. He says, go on, go on. I said, no, no, no. He says, take it with you. So I still have that home. So maybe tomorrow evening I might... Uh, Give him a toast. But rest in mm. peace, Mike. He was a great friend, great person, a wonderful person on stories. And he adored boxing. George Best, one of the stories he was telling me that um, George Best was under pressure at one stage and he was out in the back garden playing football with his younger son, uh, with his son, Mike. So Mike's pals came in wondering where Mike was. He said he was out playing football in the back garden, but George Best. <laughs> so it was just, just terrific stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, um, oh, yeah, so... I could go on all day about Mike Parkinson, but yeah. uh, rest in peace. Absolutely, Fine broadcaster. Yeah. Love, lovely man. Yeah, rest in a peace. Fabulous broadcaster, there is no doubt. Listen, Paul, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, Paul Allen, PR professional who worked for RTE for 15 years. Uh, that's uh, across the board, working in sound, continuity, and indeed as a journalist in the newsroom there. Michael Reed on LMFM. Did you hear the one about the doctor who said to the patient, do you want the good news or the bad news? And the patient said, oh, give me the good news, doctor, please. And the doctor said, well, we removed the leg. The patient, or the operation went exactly as planned, not a glitch, everything perfect. Oh, great, said the patient. Um, What's the bad news? And the doctor said it was the wrong leg. Oh, how we laughed as kids when my granddad would tell us that joke every time that he told it. Uh, But uh, it's the kind of thing that actually happens for real and there is nothing at all funny about it in real life. In fact, there was close to half a million adverse incidents recorded by Irish hospitals over a five-year period. Uh, This is according to figures from the HSE that were given to the AIN2 leader, Padre Tobin, who's a TD for Meath West. A very good morning to you, Padre Tobin, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I take it a, a lot of uh, these adverse incidents were fairly minor incidents, uh, but a little like my granddad's joke, uh, some of them uh, weren't at all funny. Some of them were very serious. People were left incapacitated, and indeed thousands of people have died as a result over the years. Yeah, these figures are absolutely jaw-dropping. And um, when we first started to research into this area, we just could not get over the level of adverse incidents that were happening uh, in hospitals and in the health service across the country. So in the last five years, half a million people have suffered an adverse incident, uh, which is an extremely high number of people given the population of the state is only five million. Um, And... We've also seen that there has been 3,148 people who have died directly as a result of an adverse incident uh, in a hospital. Um, And those figures are far higher than those who are killed in the roads, uh, for example. And these are 
deaths that are preventable deaths. These are deaths that you know should not have happened. Uh, we've also seen that about 500 people have suffered long-term or permanent disability uh, as a result of an accident uh, in the hospital. And mm. um, so this came about, I was doing a bit of work for uh, constituents, uh, constituents of mine in, in Navin who had a stroke. <clears throat> she had to wait an hour and a half, first of all, for the ambulance to arrive at her house. When she arrived at her, uh, arrived at her house and brought her to hospital, um, the hospital gave her the wrong blood in a transfusion, which had a significant effect on her whole system and really pushed her to the edge, you know. Um, and thankfully, after a while, she came back and she uh, recovered uh, from that. And, and then she was brought in to have a shower one day with two nurses. One of the nurses was pulled away from her because the, the hospital is so busy. Uh, she was left with one nurse in the shower. And as a result, she slipped and fell and had a significant head injury against uh, the the, the floor of the shower. And, you know, this woman had gone through, you know, a phenomenal number of mishaps within the the hospital service, uh, which significantly led to a negative outcome uh, in her life. And I wanted to know, you know, how often was this actually happening? Uh, We also put in parliamentary questions to see how much the state claims agency uh, was actually paying out as a result of these adverse incidents. And Aintu found out that in the last five years, the state claims agency has paid out 1.4 billion euros in compensation Mm. as a result of this. So not not only is there an enormous human cost, a tragic, disastrous human cost for so many people, there's actually a significant financial cost to what's happening here. Why? Uh, Because uh, I think we're all aware that before you go for surgery uh, and uh, quite a, a lot of procedures that you sign a disclaimer. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I had an operation myself and um, in, in the last couple of years and I was to get a, um, a, a graft from a leg and just be, after I had the anaesthetic, I was falling asleep as, as you do after the anaesthetic <clears throat> and the doctor said, the um, the graft is to come from the left leg, and I knew you no, know, the graft was to come from the right leg. So I piped up just before I, I fell asleep. You no, know, that's the wrong leg. The graft was, you know, it was to come yeah. from the right leg. And um, so what's happening in hospitals is the hospitals are under so much pressure. They're so poorly staffed at the moment, and that there is a, a direct correlation between staff who have so much work to do mm. and. Um, the, the level of mistakes they made. Okay, actually, sorry, just just to back up though, I mean, does the disclaimer not cover mistakes like that? Uh, if the graft had been taken from uh, the wrong leg, had you not signed uh, a disclaimer to say, well, look, you know, I understand the risks that are associated with this? Well, to be honest, I can't give you the legal view. Uh, it would be wrong for me to pretend to, okay. to know the yeah, legal yeah. internet of the actual disclaimer. But I do know uh, that in cases that I have worked for uh, and families that I've worked for, uh, where the HSE have got it wrong, the HSE have been forced to either cough up compensation or cough up the necessary uh, cost of the treatment that has resulted uh, as because of the mistake that they have made. So Which is neither here nor there in a, a lot of ways. I mean, when we're talking about people who end up uh, permanently incapacitated and shouldn't have been or died and shouldn't have died, uh, there are much more important things uh, than the financial cost of it all, I Absolutely. take it. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I haven't seen this in, in, in the, the research that I've done directly, but I have heard of occasions whereby the wrong person was operated on. Mm. Uh, which has led to a death. How and on earth could that happen? 
that's I, 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 sometimes people have the same names or similar names uh, in hospitals, um, and it's 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 a report that I've heard that we're actually going to chase up now with with the department uh, to see can we get that information. I'm really annoyed with the government's response to this and the HSC's response to this because, you know, in the the level of adverse incidents has increased by eleven percent since last year. So the figures are, are dramatically going upwards. Uh, and yet the, gov- the, the HSE are shrugging their shoulders to this and saying, well, you know, this is just part of you know, uh, how we do business mm. uh, as such. And, you the, know, fi- the figures uh, you got, by the way, just for our listeners, 106,000 adverse incidents last year. It, exactly, 100, yeah. 106,000. Again, it's a breathtaking a figure to think that just in one year you can have so many adverse incidents, um, and like you know yourself that if there's no accountability in a system, if somebody is not held to account, if there's not a cost to making mistakes, uh, to negative actions, um, well then there's, there's there's no reason to stop those negative actions or those mistakes. So we need to find out what's happening in terms of if a person carries out an operation, makes a mistake that leads to a death. And even if there's compensation paid out, what actually happens in terms of that individual's career? Is that individual punished or, or do they suffer any, any cost in relation to that at all? And if, if not, why not? Also, my initial question to the minister was to give us the number of adverse incidents per hospital. And the minister's refusing to do that. The minister's saying that he does not want to create a league table of hospitals. And again, you know, I would be very uh, much of the view that actually... You, you know, hospitals should be um, responsible for the number of adverse incidents that happen in their own hospitals. They should have performance indicators, and the people should know what those indicators are. Um, and and the, the final point here is the massive absence of staff is crippling the health service, not just in terms of the people who are waiting on the hospital waiting list trying to get into the hospitals, but clearly from these figures in the detrimental outcomes for thousands of patients who actually do make it into hospitals as well. I think from a patient's point of view, the big question is if it's an acceptable level of risk because there is always risk, whether it's a hospital here or in Berlin or in London or wherever you like. The point here today is that 300 people Uh, will see something go wrong uh, because of mistakes made in hospitals. That's today. 300 people tomorrow uh, and every day. 290 people a day over the course of the year and that doesn't uh, account for holidays and times when hospitals close down around Christmas or, or whatever. That's an incredible statistic. Incredible figures. And the HSE's response to this was that their their figures were in line with international norms. So that was their let's say, excuse for 300-odd patients suffering an adverse incidence in a hospital today in Ireland. Now, the, 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 the worry I have here and where I disagree with them in this is because when Simon Harris was actually Minister for Health, he commissioned a report to identify, you know, the correlation between adverse incidents and understaffing in hospitals. And his report very, very clearly said that there was a clear correlation, there was a clear link, there was causality in terms of the number of uh, adverse incidents that happens in hospitals and the low level of, of, of staff. And that stands to reason. Like if you have, you know, four nurses 
you know, on a particular ward of maybe 15 uh, beds. But those four nurses are going to make a far better job in achieving a successful outcome for those patients than if you have two nurses that are on who are running hither and thither, you know, at, mm. at the end of, uh, of their tether trying to, to fix these issues. And so, you know, we really need to get to grips with the, the, the crisis. And those the figures that I have, you know, also relate to the fact that there's 700 missing hospital consultants in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have significant absence of key staff in hospitals, it will definitely lead to uh, poorer outcomes and adverse mm-hmm. incidents. And uh, the Irish hospital system is worse than other European countries in the, in the level of staffing that it has. And there's no doubt in my mind that's leading to the stark increase in the number of adverse incidents that are happening within the system. Okay, uh, an average of 300 a day, 106,000 incidents in uh, the last year, close to half a million over the last five years. Truly shocking stuff. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning, though. That is uh, the AIM2 leader, Patrick Tobin, who's a TD for Meath West. Michael Reed on LMFM. We had so many people in touch with us yesterday that uh, I promised when we were wrapping up the show that we'd come to some of uh, the comments that we didn't have time for yesterday. So true to that promise, we'll do that now. Starting with an email that came from Eileen in Kells. Eileen wrote, Hi Michael, the Rose of Tralee is not a lovely girls competition. It is so much more than that. It is about selecting a young person who will become an ambassador for their country, representing men a good cause and promoting some very worthy charities. Long may it continue and evolve, says Eileen, who said, P.S. It's high time. We all called out bigotry in all its guises from ignorant hate inciting fear mongers. Thank you indeed, Eileen, for that. Margaret was in touch by text saying the salary paid to Ryan Tuberty and even our politicians is obnoxious. No one is worth that amount of money. Uh, Ryan Tuberty has a backroom team who I assume do all of the research for him so all he has to do is present the programmes. Our politicians are the same. They have advisors to do the work for them then they give their speeches. So why are the people who are doing the real work not acknowledged for it properly? This country is too small to be paying telephone numbered salaries to anyone. Don't give me the peanut and monkey analogy because monkeys are very clever species. Look what happened with our banks. They had to be bailed out and all on top huge salaries uh, highly paid huge salaries what about the HSE in the state our health services in again all at top uh, all of, of the people at the top being paid huge salaries uh, two uh, being paid top wages doesn't always guarantee that we get what we pay for RTA and the HSE are proof of that says Margaret uh, with Mick and Kells in touch saying Michael you said uh, RTA had deceived people uh, who is RTE? Uh, I'd love to know is it a, a doorman the man on the gate the security guards why are people afraid to follow these people everyone knows that uh, some of them have jumped ship on big pensions. What fools are we, says Mick in Kells. Thank you for that. A text that comes to us this morning from Tony in County Loud. He says, Michael, I'd like to congratulate Mr. Backhurst who took a brave and courageous decision and now only has to deal with Mr. Duffy and Mr. Darcy. Mr. Duffy, let it be known at the start of all of this, he recently negotiated a further five years at €350,000 a year. This will have to be revisited in light of the 
present financial situation with the loss of licence revenue and either by agreement or not. Their remunerations brought below the €200,000 ceiling. He now has public and government support to take a tough line on the matter. Just to clarify to those feeling sorry for Mr Tuberty, he was an independent trader who benefited from that position and now must take the downside of such a position. He is not owed a job from RTE, says Tony. Thanks if you've been in touch with us today. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Thanks if you have been in touch with us uh, today. Some of uh, the comments that have uh, arrived, one from Cahill in Mornington who says, good morning Michael, at least Tubbs will be able to consider all of those offers uh, offers that are rolling in from CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN, BBC, etc. Now, if we could just get rid of some of the other grossly overpaid and egotistical so-called stars, our tax dollars may be better spent, says Cahill. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, we'd uh, another uh, text uh, from somebody who said, "Great interview with Paul Allen today." One thing struck me: he mentioned Ballymun Avenue in a story that he was telling a, a, a bit of info for anyone who doesn't know the area. The snobby residents of Ballymun Avenue got the name of the road changed to Glasnevin Avenue. You couldn't make it up. Fair play to Paul for remembering his roots. Sean in Dublin nine. Uh, thanks uh, for that uh, Sean um, we'd uh, somebody else then whatsapping too who said well Michael what's the crack Andy uh, from Czechoslovakia uh, along the border there uh, again uh, in touch with this good to know that you're still listening to us on the internet I gather it would have to be on the internet wouldn't it uh, he says Tuberty is gone and his own arrogant statement yesterday was his downfall zippy do da zippy d a my oh my this is a wonderful day <laughs> very good uh, you were up early obviously uh, they're an hour or two ahead I take it in Czechoslovakia so the cornflakes or the Weetabix uh, are long eaten at this stage uh, but uh, Andy goes on to say away with the rest of those useless elitist gougers that call themselves presenters now too please Mr Backhurst thanks uh, for that uh, Andy good to hear from you very strong comment uh, and thanks to everybody who's been in touch we'll come to more comments in in just a few moments' time, but if you would like, would like to add to what's been said, our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email Michael at lmfm.ie. Now, as I'm sure you've heard, retained firefighters have suspended their strike action. It follows talks at the Workplace Relations Commission. Fionan Blake, the station officer in Dunshockland, joins us once again. A very good morning to you, Fionan. Thanks indeed for joining us. There's obviously been progress which has led to your decision to suspend strike action uh, but that doesn't mean that strike action has necessarily ended. I, I take it that there's more work to be done. Hi Michael. Uh, yeah, thanks for having us on again. There, there's plenty more work to be done. So basically what's happened this week since I was talking to you last week was um, we got a letter sent out by the Minister Darrow Breen um, he was saying that he was aware of the escalation of the strike, as we spoke about last week, and the, the further escalation from what was going to be tomorrow. And if Darrow Breen, we didn't mention him last week, he, he's a Fianna Fáil minister. Uh, he's over the housing and the local government. So he's the same minister that's over the housing crisis at the minute now. I don't know whether he knows when he's an OFET, but uh, we have to kind of work with him on this. Um, he said in the letter that it was unsafe for firefighters and uh, kind of has been unsafe for us for a number of years now. And it's nice to see he was worried about us. But uh, he also said 
that it was unsafe for the public mm. and it was getting that way as we were saying last week and I totally agree with that. Uh, I don't know where you've seen the McDonald's fire down in Newbridge during yes. the week. Mm. There was a slow response to that due to the strike as well, you know. So All right, I didn't know that. I was very disappointed by some of uh, the headlines, I have to say. I thought uh, it, it was very inappropriate. Uh, did that take you back as a firefighter saying, um, the, do you want fries with that or, or do you want fires with that, uh, I think? Was, I'll look at yeah, look, uh, we get mm. comments. There is comments like that all yeah. the time. Mm. But, uh, okay, you know, anyway, that's beside the point. Like yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, look, he said then that he just wanted to seek assistance from the WRC, the mm. Work Relations Commission. So after uh, Stip2 then met with our negotiating committee, and that was on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday at 12 o'clock they were called into a meeting in the WRC with Stip2 and the negotiating and the LGMA, the negotiating committee. Our committee. Mm. So they went in at... Uh, I think it was 12 o'clock on Wednesday and they were kept in there till 2 o'clock in the morning. Mm. Now, I, don't know, I don't know whether that was a negotiating tactic. Uh, it was, it was tiredness was fairly setting in by 2 o'clock, but I don't know whether it was a negotiation or an interrogation that went on. It was slow and painful. Uh, Two then sent out a video in the middle of the night at about half 2 or 2 o'clock, I think, suspending strike action. Um, we just feel it was kind of badly handled by SIP2 in a way because some media outlets had parts of the, of the recommendations or the deal before we did. We didn't know exactly what was going on. We were back on the picket that morning, but suspended from 12 o'clock anyway. And there was just a lot of anger and frustration uh, around the whole lot and how it panned out. And we kind of got a, got a look at the deal. Now, I can't comment too much on, on, on what they put forward. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Because we haven't got, we haven't got it, uh, the document out yet, you know, so we're not going to get that till about next Wednesday. Okay, SIPTU have issued a statement saying uh, yeah. that there would be guaranteed minimum earnings for new recruits of over 18,000, uh, guaranteed earnings for firefighters with more than eight years of service uh, of over 21,500, minimum earnings of between 27,400 and 31,730 for station officers and 
confirmed uh, that there will be 400 new recruits uh, taken on uh, and uh, the requirement to be available from 48 weeks is to be reduced to 24 weeks. So I take it that's uh, in line uh, what what you've been told before the document has been published properly, as you say. Yes, yes, we have been told that. Uh, but see, <coughs> the problem with this is this, this is kind of almost the exact same deal that we feel it's almost the exact same deal that the LRC came out with before it's just slightly sugar coated the the guaranteed earnings are brought forward from 8,500 to 18,269 that's just guaranteed earnings that's basically just your own earnings they're adding 75 hours of your calls of what you will earn and they're going to roll it into guaranteed earnings because we were talking about lads getting mortgages and not being able to get mortgages because your guaranteed earnings are so low. Mm. So basically that guaranteed earnings, we feel is kind of a, a smoke screen as if you're getting a raise of 10,000. It's actually just your own money being moved about. So it's not really a raise at all. They did add in the, uh, was double hours for training and drills, which was good. 40 hours community work and the, our double hour starts at 8 o'clock. It's moving from 8 to 10. But really we feel like the, this is the it's the WRC deal that's just sugarcoated, really, and it's going to have right. to be voted on. Which, which you rejected. Um, yeah, so we, we rejected it. I'm getting the impression that this one probably won't wash either, and uh, there's uh, a very real prospect that you'll reject this one as well. Yeah, there is a real prospect of that, Michael. There's, there's a promise also. They, they made a promise that we were going to be looked after in the public pay talks, but we can't trust that. Like, that could be a couple of percent on, on already what's a very small income. But anyway... That's the kind of promise they're putting forward. Uh, we feel like it's kind of delaying tactics and it's kind of taking the wind out of the sails a bit. But uh, the document's not coming out, I think, till next Wednesday. Mm. And then there's a couple of weeks cooling off and then it's going to be voted on in September. So we feel like it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of just kicking it down the line a little bit. Now, the only good news with Halfie is that we're back in, in work fully. So the strike action is suspended. But uh, this is not going to go away, and it's definitely not. We're going to keep fighting this, and the money is here to fix the problem. And, you know, we won't stop until this is restructured and the proper service is in place, really, you know. So Mm. what's going to happen is next, we're all going to be voting on this. I'm on a a countrywide group there, and a lot of the counties, the shop stewards have gone and asked the firefighters to have a little vote amongst themselves, and it. It's looking like it's going to be widely rejected around the country because it's simply not good enough still. Right, okay. So so that's that's just the latest at the minute. So I can't really speak yeah. too much more about it until they get the full document and we have to study the document really and go through it. Mm. But uh, it's it's not looking it's not looking like they're in the same page at all just yet anyway. Okay. No. All right. Now that's a very unusual situation uh, I think uh, for there be to be such depth of feeling against what the negotiators are are putting in front of you. Uh, disappointment uh, uh, as you say to some extent. Uh, I suppose the result of the vote will tell uh, to what extent Fiona. It will indeed. That, that's, that's the next okay. step anyway. All right, and that'll be in September. Uh, yeah. we, we, we'll find out then. Fionan, thank you indeed uh, for joining Thanks, us uh, once again. Fionan Blake is uh, the station officer at Don Shocklin Fire Station. Let me bring you some more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, this morning. Marion Trim says, Michael, does this mean the fact that Brian Turbridy, uh has parted ways with RTA or vice versa? Uh, she asks if this means that all of the RTE people that we watched before the different Oireachtas committees are cleared and on big pensions now. 
Probably, Mary. I don't know, but uh, I don't think that uh, it will impact on anybody's pension. And we do know that uh, the old board were stood down by Mr. Backhurst. Uh, somebody else in touch this is Alice actually thanks uh, Alice uh, for your text and getting back with your name uh, she says uh, she enjoyed the interview with Patrick Tobin and she said I can't believe all of the hospital's mistakes I almost laughed when I heard this but it is so serious I do think that a hospital should be named and shamed and then it might come to an end I'd have to assume Alice that it's every hospital in the country I mean, if 300 things go wrong today, I, I think if it was in one or two hospitals, they'd really stand out like a, a sore thumb and that there'd be something seriously wrong uh, that would require uh, immediate investigation and intervention and uh, putting it right and all of that. But if 300 things go wrong today and 300 things go wrong tomorrow, and the next day and so on. And at the end of the year, you've over a, a thousand adverse incidents. It has to be in every single hospital in the country. Um, somebody else saying uh, we need to t- talk about COVID, COVID vaccine injuries and deaths. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Baz in touch saying if uh, Ryan Tuberty made his own TV show, would anybody buy it? <laughs> And thank you, uh, Baz. I, I'd imagine people would. Uh, Sarah, thank you for your text. She says, hi, Michael. I find it interesting how all the uh, other broadcasters wanted Ryan so badly. But as far as I'm aware, we've never seen any physical evidence of this. I, I take it, uh, Sarah, you're talking about the BBC or whoever else uh, we've been worried about or we've been told we should be worried about over the years uh, that if you didn't pay an arm and a leg uh, that Ryan Turbridy or whoever it was would go away overseas. Uh, no, uh, I think uh, the fact uh, that Ryan Turbridy had gone from 700,000 to 500,000 or whatever it was, um, these figures are beyond most of us and now was willing to take 170,000 says it all. Thank you, though. If you've been in touch, your telephone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Cannabis is very, very popular with young people in Germany. In 2021, a quarter of the population between 18 and 25 years of age consumed cannabis. And that's double the number that would have been the case a decade previous to that. 25% of young people consuming cannabis in one way or another, the German government has decided to act and they're going to legalise cannabis. The Minister for Health there, Karl Lauterbach, said we've a rising problematic consumption level. We couldn't simply allow it to go on. And legalising cannabis is an important turning point in our drug policy. What does that mean in Germany? Uh, And what does it mean here and around the world? Well, I don't know. But let me just read you uh, a report from Reuters. Now, Reuters is a huge international news agency. And I I think it's one of the most respected news agencies in the world. Um, They don't deal with gossip. Uh, They report on the facts. And I think they're recognised for that. But this is how Reuters have reported this. 
Germany's cabinet passed a contentious bill to legalise recreational marijuana use and cultivation, one of the most liberal cannabis laws in Europe, that could potentially provide further momentum for a similar worldwide trend. Let's uh, speak uh, to people before Profit TD, Gino Kenny. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Are, are you surprised at how Germany is going about legalising cannabis? Um, no, Michael. I mean, obviously the German government have flagged this for a long time since um, the government came into power a number of years ago in relation to liberalising kind of the cannabis uh, market. And this is welcome. Uh, it's not full legalization, but it certainly goes a long way in kind of um, ending prohibition. There won't, there won't be shops or coffee shops or any of those no. things that you see in other no. countries. You'll be allowed to possess up to 25 grams of cannabis and you can grow uh, up to three plants or you can acquire weed as associates of a non-profit cannabis club and I guess that's the uh, next thing to a, a cannabis shop uh, type of thing or coffee shop. Yeah, yeah, it would be obviously for, you know, as you said, a, a person, if them, if the law is passed, they can possess up to 25 grams, which is a lot of cannabis. Um, and obviously they can grow tree plants and then they'd be, they'd be a part of a cannabis social club. So uh, it's a good it's a good model. Um, now, to go beyond that, then you're talking about kind of sale and distribution. Uh, now, that's not what kind of this bill is um, employing, but I think that would be the next step in relation to liberalising kind of um, the laws around cannabis. And it's very welcome. Mm. I mean, Germany is the most populous country in the European Union, and it's hugely significant that, you know, they're, they put their hands up and said, look, our present laws just don't work. Mm. Um, and we need to do something different. And that's that's good. You know, yeah. it's good. But, but this, isn't, this isn't Spain or Portugal, this is Germany. Uh, and I would imagine that because it's Germany, it led to this report from Reuters saying it could give momentum to similar moves across uh, the world. Yeah. Uh, am I putting too much weight on that report from Reuters? No, no, Michael. The, the momentum of ending prohibition, not only in Europe, across the world, has been kind of ongoing for the last decade. And we've seen in Canada, a number of states in the United States, Uruguay, and other countries. Um, and I think it's only a matter of time before prohibition ends uh, here and in Europe. I mean, uh, Luxembourg and, and Malta essentially kind of legalised cannabis for personal use. It's decriminalised uh, in them small countries. Um, obviously, Spain have a de facto kind of liberalisation, uh, same with Holland. Czech Republic. So other countries are definitely looking at different models because the model that has gone on for the last number of decades simply hasn't worked. The black market has essentially controlled a controlled drug um, and in order, you know, for to, you know, I suppose, tamper with that, they have to look at different models. So it's very welcome. It's very welcome. And at least we're having a mature kind of conversation in relation to our drug laws, not only in the European Union, but obviously Ireland as well. And hopefully this this will kind of uh, be a domino effect across uh, Europe and where countries where they've had prohibition of cannabis, they can, we can have different laws. Because the status quo, Michael, doesn't work. doesn't work. Um, and we need to do something different. Now, everybody will agree with that, and that's fine. But um, to me, um, you know, 
prohibition has been counterproductive. Uh, where, uh, because if you if you think about it, the Misuse of Drugs Act was you know created in the mid mid seventies. Mm. So that's six decades of um, legislation to essentially stop the you know the possession and supply of cannabis. It's done the opposite. Mm. And largely, the, the cannabis market is controlled by the black market. So you well, have to take control back. Well, that's the big question. Will will this end the black market in Germany? And I think that will be a, a big experiment uh, for people outside of uh, Germany to look at as uh, this develops. The Germans believe that that will be the case. And that if uh, you get rid of the black market or if you curb it at least, that it means yeah. that uh, people who consume cannabis won't be consuming agents that shouldn't be in the substance exactly. uh, or uh, that you'll have the level of of crime that you have as a result of uh, the black market. Uh, but this is not without its German critics either, is it? Mm. No, no, there's obviously even people in the kind of the government in Germany at the moment are quite critical of it because it's over-bureaucratic. And that could be the, you know, that could be the danger that it becomes uh, overly kind of bureaucratic and a lot of red tape in relation to, you know, the regulations around this. And that's what you don't want. And there's obviously other people uh, that are in kind of German Parliament that are opposed to any sort of liberalisation of cannabis for all sorts of reasons. Um, but I think the German government have basically said, look, this just this doesn't work. You know, our present laws around you know cannabis doesn't mm. work, and that's obviously you know projected in relation to cannabis. And consumption uh, relates to young people and so forth. I take it you don't turn off this tap um, and you don't go back now. And now that they've decided to light or to legalise cannabis, I, I think uh, these laws are expected to come into force from next month. Uh, that, yeah. uh, as you say, it, it'll extend to becoming available uh, in the way drink is available, whether it's through an off-licence or a, a pub. Indeed, uh, whilst they're not going to establish shops or coffee shops or anything like that no. in the initial stages, uh, they are going to have a, a pilot project uh, which will licence a, a number of, a number of shops in some regions yeah. to sell cannabis. Yeah. yeah, so eventually, I think this is a five-year plan. So I think mid midway through that plan, they will look at different regions in Germany for sale and supply. So there will be shops um, in relation to um, you know sale, um, because at the you know at the moment, for, if this legislation was passed, uh, you know it's it's limited, but very very welcome. Mm. But I think those that have been calling for the end of prohibition would be looking for kind of legalization and regulation, and you know of course I mean the black market won't overnight kind of recede into the kind of the shadows. Far from it, you know. In fact. The black market uh, would probably be always there to a certain degree. But once you regulate something and, you know, don't kind of, uh, you know, the cost is very important, you know, because sometimes you're competing against the black market. But other countries have, you know, where they introduced kind of cannabis legislation, largely the black market has receded. And that makes sense, you know. I mean, there's still a black market for tobacco and alcohol in this country, even though both of them drugs are perfectly legal and perfectly accessible. But they're always built with a small black market. But generally, where it's regulated, where it's taxed and controlled by the state, uh, there's better outcomes for everybody. Of course, and again, there will be obvious issues with people dependency on cannabis. Like that's, we, we can't get away from that, you know. But like all drugs, the best way to control them is to have control 
from the state rather yeah. than the black market because there's no regulation. If you, if you, if, so I say to people, if they want the status quo to exist, then be prepared for the consequences of that. You know, is uh, part of the attraction to cannabis a bit like the poison apple? And if uh, you legalise it, uh, you take the wrongdoing away and uh, the thrill of uh, going against the rules and all of that sort of thing yeah. and find a different way of doing it. And does that put young people at risk of discovering other drugs, uh, harder drugs, more damaging drugs? Well, it certainly takes a stigma away from cannabis use. The vast majority of people will never use cannabis, but if they do, at the moment in Ireland, if if you're using cannabis, you can be sanctioned, you know, by the police for using cannabis. Um, but it takes the stigma away from, you know, it being underground, because largely that's where it is. And it's hugely profitable um, by the black market. And that money then feeds back into criminal gangs. And when, when a young person buys uh, cannabis off a, a drug dealer, I mean, they're not going to ask them their age, far from it. In fact, you know, it could lead into all sorts of things. Mm. So the, the system of regulation is a better system than what we have at the moment. And the status quo doesn't work. If it did work, mm. I mean, the proliferation of cannabis over the last, particularly last year, particularly during the kind of the potency of ta- cannabis, it's not controlled. And once you don't have control, then you lose control. Well, this control is in Germany because if people are growing the plants themselves, uh, there is no yeah, regulation, is there? Good. Well, there is regulation as in, you know, somebody that, you know, chooses to use cannabis. And it's very important that, you know, because the, the lessons that we have to learn from other states in the mm. United States where the over-commercialization of cannabis where, you know, huge corporations have basically monopolized the cannabis market. And that's to the detriment of those that want to use cannabis and society as a whole. So this system is a better system where it's not for profit. Um, you know, you know, people can grow. Mm. It's a plant after all. Mm. You know, it's, uh, it's been used for millennia. Uh, it's been used for kind of all sorts of things. But it's inevitable it's going to end up on every street corner. I mean, in the same way that you have pubs on every street corner. That's going to be the next step. I don't think you'd argue with that. Does it mean that Europe is going to be awash with cannabis? I'm sure it already is. But, I mean, yeah. is that the end of trying to stamp out cannabis and cannabis use because it's going to be legally available in the middle of Europe? Yeah, I mean, once Germany introduced these laws, I think it's, it, it's the, the beginning of the end of prohibition in Europe. I don't see how, you know, it could go backwards. It could only go forwards. And, you know, in a, better, in a system where it's regulated, you know, the amount of police time, the amount of time that's used kind of criminalizing people, bringing people to courts, I mean, that could be, that time and resources could be better spent elsewhere in society, you know, so I think I think the majority of people in Ireland, Michael, would agree with that. You know, I think opinion polls have suggested that a majority of people would are open to the idea of changing the status quo, and you know, rather than criminalising people, you know, through the courts, you know, bringing people to prison, all sort of a better system is regulation, taxes, and control a drug that's not controlled. In fact, it's controlled by the black market. So why allow that to happen? So this system is better, and hopefully Germany 
you know, over time we'll see, yeah, we got it right. There's obviously there's obviously teething problems with these issues. You know, it's not going to be perfect by any means. But surely this is a better system um, than they have now. And hopefully that kind of transcends across the European Union. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. As always, People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny. Michael Reed on LMFM. Primary school principals in Waterford are appealing to parents not to get a smartphone for their child or allow them to go on to social media and to respect the age ratings on video games. This is called the Gen Free Charter. It's being done in collaboration with Barnardo's and from the 1st of September, primary schools in Watford will display it and invite parents to sign up and then display the charter in their own home. Brian Collins is uh, the principal of Terman Fecken National School and on the line. Good morning, Brian. Thanks indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I'm sure you've got insight into parents thinking on smartphones for primary school going children. Uh, do you think this will work? Waterford. Uh, good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, well, I, I think it's a really positive move by the the Waterford schools. It has been um, it has been a topic, uh, a hot topic for the last few years, uh, because you know it, I suppose overall technology has been a force for good, and it has changed the educational environment for for all schools and all uh, uh, pupils. But um, mobile phone use is problematic and certainly uh, as far as I'm concerned mobile phones have no place uh, in a school during the school day Um, pupils have more than enough devices in school. But this goes way beyond that doesn't it because I mean like your school I'm sure many of the schools in Waterford don't allow primary school children to have phones with them or in their class or to use them and I'm sure the rules are different here and there but this is asking parents to agree to not allow their children to have a smartphone or go on social media. Yeah, well, I suppose that's, you know, a, a further step. And I think, you know, even if it highlights the fact that there are very uh, reasonable concerns that parents should consider, obviously, we're, it's not our job to uh, act as parents when the, ch- when the children aren't in school, you know, parents, you know, it's their responsibility to make to make informed choices for their children. But I suppose parents, if they if they, if they're provided with uh, all of the information that's relevant and you know the most up to date information, I suppose it it does uh, encourage parents to think twice. And it it will make it easier for parents to maybe to to not give their child a phone if other children in the child's peer group also don't have phones. Because mm, the kids are coming home and saying, why am I the only one who doesn't have a, a phone? And if you're not the only one, uh, then it's a, a different argument. <laughs> and that's exactly what, what mm. comes up in, 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 in class. And even with my own children, and my own yeah. children are growing mm. up, but even as they were growing up, you know, they always felt uh, um, uh, in some way uh, um, deprived because, you know, the, the, everybody in my class has a phone. Why can't I have one? And it's very, very difficult for parents to uh, stand up to that pressure because 
they know their child is probably right that most of the children in the class do. Mm. And nobody wants to be the odd one out. Nobody wants their child to be the odd one out. But if children uh, have smartphones, are there problems in the schools, in your school, for example, where children aren't allowed to have a a smartphone? Are you dealing with the problems that occur outside of school times? Uh, Because we hear of all sorts of things that are are happening, uh, whether it's bullying, name calling or watching inappropriate things on the Internet. Yeah, it, it's 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 a it's a real issue in schools, and there is only so much we can do. We have very common sense measures, and not just in the school internments. Like in all schools that I'm that I'm uh, familiar with, would have um, a, a mobile school or a mobile uh, uh, phone ban during the day. Now, in practical terms, children some children do need to have a, a phone with them because you know there are arrangements. Uh, that parents make that, that, that make with their children in the morning that may have to change. So when they come out of school, they just need to check, is there a message from their mom or dad about going home to a, a different house or being picked up by somebody else? So that's, that's okay. But certainly there's no, in my opinion, there's absolutely no um, um, excuse for having a phone on in school. Uh, and I think if, if like, in... There was a UN study carried out some time ago, and like it, it did make it very clear that there was very strong evidence to suggest that excessive use of mobile phones, uh, you know, it, uh, resulted in, in, in reduced educational performance and had a nev- negative effect on mm. young ch- children's emotional stability and their emotional well-being. And it, it did cause anxiety for children. Cyberbullying is very, very prevalent at the moment, and schools are uh, really putting a lot of time into cyberbullying programs. But as you rightly said, because the children aren't using the phones in school, they're using the phones somewhere else. So yeah. I suppose it, for parents to be aware that, um, that it is really important to monitor phone usage and to limit phone usage. Because the other thing, and it's slightly off, off topic, but we have actually noticed a very significant increase in vision problems with young children because their their long uh, their field of long vision is deteriorated because they are not actually looking in the distance because they're looking at a, a screen close to their face mm. uh, for a pr- prolonged period of time. But for young eyes, that's never good. But uh, so there there are lots of things to consider uh, and lots of things for parents to consider. Uh, and I think what the steps that Waterford schools have have taken and hopefully it will. Uh, it will maybe become national policy uh, because it has become national policy in in France and Holland and uh, several other countries um, that you know to limit uh, mobile phone usage for young children is is very very important in my opinion. Okay, and do you think it, there'd be support for it uh, amongst local principals? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. I can't see why we wouldn't uh, support uh, something like that. But again, we have to be careful. You know, we're in local parentis during the school day, we can obviously give support and advice to parents and provide them with information. But ultimately, it's the parents of the children that, you know, have the final say in what happens mm. outside of school. So, you know, you know, uh, and if they can make informed choices and if, we, if the pressure can be taken off them because, uh, you know, other parents are following the, the same road, you know, I think that would be a good, a good, uh, a good thing. Okay, uh, we've uh, seen 
Very worrying uh, statistics uh, in terms of uh, the vacant posts. Uh, I think uh, the last count was around 1,200 vacancies across primary and secondary schools. You've spoken to us in the past about problems trying to get substitute teachers, uh, let alone full-time teachers. Uh, how are things looking going into the new term? I, I think your, your listeners are probably tired of me harping on about this. But, I doubt uh, that, Brian. <laughs> unfortunately, uh, things haven't changed. Uh, they're probably a little bit even worse this year because, uh, uh, yeah, there are a number of elements that come into play here. Um, uh, we um, we have, I think yesterday, 647 primary school jobs uh, unfilled um, and uh, nearly 500 secondary school uh, teachers um, uh, missing as well. So it, it, it is a big, 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 big problem for, for schools because uh, it, it will mean that schools have to be, you know, inventive and imaginative to try to make sure that there's a teacher standing in front of, of every class. And if the teachers haven't applied for, let's say in our school, we, earlier on in the summer, we had seven uh, teaching posts, we had five applications. So Obviously, we had to re-advertise again later on mm. in the summer. And, uh, and that doesn't mean uh, you've filled five posts. Uh, it's quite possible that right. not all file appli- uh, five applicants were suitable. You know yourself, you yeah. want to get the very, very best teachers that are available. Well, so, you'd be hoping for 20 applications at least for each post, wouldn't you? Uh, listen, when I started, when I, I, I'm a principal now nearly 23 years, and when, when at back in those days, when there was one job in a school, you'd get over 100 applications for one God. job. Wow, my God. So that's a big change around now. And I, I know it's two decades, but even, you know, 10 years ago, it was a completely different landscape. Mm. Uh, so, but, but it is a problem. And what, what it means is, and I, it breaks my heart to say it, is that children with additional needs are going to be impacted upon because if you don't have enough class teachers in a school yeah. and you don't you can't find a teacher, you're going to have to move somebody sideways, maybe from a teacher who is giving additional support to children with additional learning needs to put them into a class because otherwise you have 25, 26, 27 children with no teacher on any given day. Mm. And that's not, that's not possible. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the solution isn't acceptable either to have non-qualified teachers in front of children. No, no. Listen, you mm. you want to maintain a very, very high standard of, of education in all schools in the country. Uh, I know Dublin schools are, you know, the, the worst affected by all of this. But having unqualified teachers in the system, uh, we're grateful for people who are willing to come in to help us out. But obviously, it's not. It's not a long-term solution, and it's not. It's far from ideal. Uh, but um, it, it, principals are in a position where they, you know, they, they, they are really out of options. You know, what do you do? Do you send children home if there is no teacher? Yeah. That's something that's... A, no, you're, you're up for the lesser of two evils. Uh, and as you say, the work that people do are undoubtedly appreciated and hugely valuable uh, because it's a much better uh, evil, if you like, than <laughs> the other option. Brian, it's a pleasure to talk to you as always. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Not at all, Michael. Thank you very much. Brian Collins, Principal of Termin Fecken National School. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, we've a, a very successful jobs uh, market in uh, this country with full employment. There's a, a job for anybody who wants to work in uh, this country, and uh, there is no doubt it is an employee's market these days. Employers uh, are complaining they can't get the staff, uh, and at times they can't get the staff with the necessary skills 
to do the job. That's why the government has launched a consultation period on critical skills and employment permits. That closes today. But there is undoubtedly a need to bring people into this country with skills to do the work uh, that uh, employers are looking to be done. This is according to a survey carried out by Chambers Ireland. Shane Connealy is uh, the Director of Policy and Communications with Chambers Ireland and on the line. And a very good morning to you, Shane. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You surveyed some 400 small and medium enterprises. Tell us a little bit about the findings, if you would, please. Good morning, Michael. And your listeners, thank you very much for having me on this morning. Well, I suppose the big thing for us was that, you know, 88% in total, so almost 9 out of 10 of the respondents were you know, having a skill shortage in their business. This is right the way across the country. I, I was looking at some of the, the, the more local detailed uh, information there this morning for you guys, but there's no difference in Loud versus Kerry, to be honest. It is all across the country. And and we find that, you know, in in, in businesses, you know, of all sizes as well. So obviously kind of, there's going to be large-scale gaps in very large companies, but right the way down to the smallest micro-companies, they're finding there's an awful lot of challenges in, in, in getting the right people. The smaller ones, it's very often like the technical, qualified professionals mm. in the construction sector there was, was, was very highly represented. In smaller ones, it's often kind of customer-facing roles. So I'm sure if, if you've managed to get out and about around the country this, this summer now, head to hotels, you'll see that there's lots of fresh-faced 18-year-olds that'll be serving you coffee. Okay. Um, who probably just don't have the experience um, that, you know, that perhaps pre-COVID. So, so you're, you're not talking about a, a difficulty in recruiting brain surgeons. This is at every well, level. Brain, brain surgeons too. Um, <laughs> sure, so but, but not necessarily brain surgeons. You're talking about jobs at every level. And that's what our main, main, main message mm. is based on. The government's uh, consultation is on the critical skills list. So the critical skills list is, you know, those very high-skilled jobs, you know, so if you're wanting to bring in a coder or a data analyst or you know, perhaps a, a very technically qualified lawyer. Those kind of ones have, have a pathway through to get coming to Ireland, but it's still a long and complicated one. It often takes three, four months to get all the paperwork correct. Mm. And that's for the very highest of skills. And so the, the secondary message for ourselves regarding the survey is that, it, you know, the skills gap isn't just there for those very high, highly qualified individuals. It's there right the way across the market at mm. all levels. And for a lot of those jobs, uh, like in hospitality uh, that you mentioned, uh, they're jobs that most people would be able to do with sufficient training. The problem is, is that there aren't enough people available uh, to be recruited, who will stay in the job long enough uh, to be trained in to do the job and then to actually do it uh, unsupervised. That's, that that's what goes back to what you were saying about the... Um about it being a, a, a market for the employees these days. You know, there's an awful lot of opportunities out there if you are somebody who is kind of up for working and therefore it, it, it's become a, a very competitive market for employers that are looking to employ people. I mean, we have members now who are hoteliers, for example, that are putting up their staff in their hotels um, in order to ensure that they're able to you know, hold and retain and develop staff internally. And they're often people who are coming in from outside of the country as well. So they have the added extra hurdles there of trying to find somewhere to live 
We've other, you know, kind of in, in, in the, the meat packaging sector, for example, there's an awful lot of businesses that have gone as far as, you know, buying out houses themselves and are subletting to their employees mm. in order to ensure that they can get the people in. Okay. Uh, and I'll ask you about that again in a moment. Uh, but overall, uh, if uh, you're looking at uh, this half-full glass of water, is it half-full or is it half-empty? Because there's a, a lot of positives about what we're talking about here as well, well isn't it? Like, like these are these you know these are capacity problems. This is you know like the, the, the economy is running hot, and I suppose kind of the the the, the issue is that you know as we get more and more things done in in the country, as we can boost up our national development plan, as we improve our grid, and we work on our climate action uh, plan <clears throat> projects, you know, we're going to have a much larger demand for, for, for products. The, the back of the envelope is, it, it looks like there's going to be about 300 billion in kind of government spending and projects over the next kind of 10 to 15 years. Mm. That's going to require a huge amount of labour and there's going to be a, lar- a lot of competition between the construction sector and other parts of the economy as well. And that's going to, you know, in the absence of kind of an associated increase in the labour supply, um, that's going to drive up costs and make us less competitive. When you say we need a, a huge amount of labour, have you any idea of what that means in terms of the numbers of people who are needed? Well, if you were to just consider the housing sector, so it's approximately one and a half um, working years goes into each house that we build. You know, so if we're looking to kind of boost our targets from you know the thirty thousand at the moment up towards fifty, sixty thousand, well then in that case we probably need you know another forty five thousand people just in housing. In housing. God, right. Know? Okay, okay. <laughs> not going to ask you to put a figure on it. Not an amazingly large number. No, however. but when you say it's just in housing, uh, you know, yeah. you, you start to add on to that. Oh, okay, but uh, to continue on with uh, my uh, thinking here in terms of bringing in these people, what happens then? Where do they live? And then when they're working and earning money and they want to go for a meal or go on a holiday, who's going to serve them? Because uh, it's a bit of a, a chicken and egg situation, is it not? It, it, it is to an extent, but I mean, if, if again, if you, take, if you take the housing one, you know, it, you know, if somebody has been working in Ireland in the housing sector for more than eighteen months, you know, effectively they've built a house at that point. They've mm. built a home. They can probably put up three other people in it. So, like, it, it doesn't have to be a pyramid scheme. Like, it, you know, we can build high density housing um, that can support that increasing workforce relatively quickly. We have to do it. Okay. That's All right. holding us back right now. Okay. Uh, when will uh, the government uh, report on this? Uh, government will report back. It, it'll be, oh, I said, after the budget at this point. Okay. Um, mm. like, there, there is a lot of input. Like, this is coming out of Department Enterprise, and they've been pushing very strongly. And they have actually been you know, improving the processes an awful lot over, over recent years. So the other big issue that's within this is that there's often two parts, two different parts of paperwork you need to get. So, you, know, you get the permit, and that can be relatively simple. The other problem is people often need to get a visa. It's dreadful. And the visa goes mm. through the Department of Justice process. There's yep. lots of trips to different um, different embassies. Mm. I know, for example... It dep- depends on the country that the person is coming from, but it can take months on end. It can take... Well, at a minimum, it'll take months. You know, potentially mm. it can take years. Like, we, we, we'd remember now up in Fingal who are bringing in um, chefs from Bangladesh. They're doing Bangladeshi food. Mm. And um, like they're, the people they were trying to hire were having to travel to India in order to get 
their their visas stamped. Mm. Okay. Past- so those kind of you know hurdles right. are ones which you know they, they often make smaller businesses particularly. You know, very scared, and and that kind of is demonstrated in our responses as well. Where mm. an awful lot of businesses are just they, they they look at the just the challenge of getting a work permit, and they decide if they'll just make do without, and they won't grow their businesses as well they can. Yeah, it's a problem in, in some ways, a good problem, but a problem nonetheless. Shane, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the program today. Shane Keneally is uh, the director of policy and communications with Chambers Ireland. So that's our program for today and this week indeed. Thanks to Maggie McGuire for researching. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next program on Monday morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.